Hey guys, I wanted to tell you about another podcast that I'm working on with Evergreen Podcasts. I'm the producer of the true crime podcast, Crime Capsule. Writer and host Benjamin Morris takes listeners deep into some of history's most compelling crimes. Each episode will provide a unique perspective on true crime as Morris interviews the authors who have written extensively about everything from the Dixie Mafia to the Thibodeau Massacre. Crime Capsule is an Evergreen Podcast production in partnership with the History Press and Arcadia Publishing. So we will have an endless and diverse catalog of books to explore. From forgotten serial killers to advancements in DNA, I can guarantee you Crime Capsule will have an episode for everyone. If you're looking for a new show to listen to during the holidays, then download Crime Capsule today at KillerPodcasts.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is you find your favorite shows. Crime Capsule is part of Killer Podcasts, the new true crime network from Evergreen. Please join us every Thursday for new episodes. Crime Capsule, history so interesting, it's criminal. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents... Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Past Santa Claus in his sleigh and a double row of candy canes, deputy coroners brought the body of six-year-old John Bonet Ramsey from her upscale home. Neighbors described the young girl as beautiful and polite. In 1995, she won the Little Miss Colorado pageant. Boulder police won't comment on her cause of death, only saying that she wasn't shot or stabbed. They are investigating her death as a homicide. So far, no arrests have been made. This case started as a kidnapping. Police were called here to the scene at about 6 a.m. the morning after Christmas. Someone inside this house had made a 911 call saying that little John Benet had been kidnapped. Well, when police got here, they went inside the house, and a short time later, they found the little girl's body. The parents, John and Patsy Ramsey, were home at the time, but detectives say the parents are not suspects. The father is the president of Access Graphics located on Boulder's Pearl Street Mall. The couple does have another child, a son around 10 years old. Whether the boy is a suspect, investigators won't comment, saying only that right now, this murder investigation is wide open. In Boulder, Phil Keating, Nine News. How do you want Jean Bonnet remembered? How do you remember her? Well, I mean, like all parents would say, she was a perfect child, but the thing that I remember about her was that uh, if I would frown, she would look at me and say, Dad, I don't like that face. And I'd smile and she said, that's better. And that's just the way she was. She loved her daddy. She loved her daddy. She was daddy's girl. Miss Ramsey, you found the note. It was a handwritten note, three pages. The note was lying across the three pages across the run of one of the stair 
treads. And it was kind of dimly lit because it was very early in the morning. And I started to read it, and it was addressed to John. It said, Mr. Ramsey. And it said, we have your daughter. And I, you know, it just was, it just wasn't registering. And I, I may have gotten through another sentence, like, okay, we have your daughter. And I, I don't know if I got any further than that. And I immediately ran back upstairs and pushed open her door, and she was not in her bed. Hello and welcome to episode 147 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast production. On this week's episode, we are going to be diving into one of the most infamous Christmas murders of all time, if not the most infamous, and that is John Benet Ramsey. And luckily, we don't have Santa Claus with us, but we have the next best thing, and that is... The captain. He's equally, welcome to the show. He's equally as fat and equally as jolly. Well, he's also bearded, just he's, like the captain. Yeah, but I, I don't like when people sit on my lap. So, touche. I would say that that yeah. is not a good look. So, yeah. at CrimeCon, no, don't don't <laughs> no be doing sitting, that. No sitting on the captain's lap. No sitting on the captain's lap. He's not Santa Claus. But we are here to dis- discuss the twenty-five year anniversary of. The John Benet Ramsey murder that occurred on December 25th, 1996. I cannot believe it's been a quarter century since this crime was committed. Well, and technically, I, a lot of people believe the crime was committed on the 26th. But she made sure that the date of her daughter's death was on Christmas. Okay. I think... I think I think technically the autopsy would show that she died on the 26th, but her birth or her gravestone says the 25th. Gotcha. Now, I thought it was that she actually, was it Christmas Eve that she was killed or was it uh, Christmas Day? Yeah, It would have been Christmas night. Christmas night, okay. Yeah, so they yeah. they woke up, opened their gifts, Went to uh, a party, came yeah. back from the party, right? And they, and they had parties all week, and I, I think that's where some people get confused because they had a party a couple days beforehand at their house, mm-hmm. but all week, you know, they're they're in a rich neighborhood with rich friends, and they all want to invite people over. Hey, come to my house, and let, you know, they kind of let me show you off what we've been doing to the house. Yeah, I think they actually did have like a Christmas tour for the city of Boulder. I think their and their house was one of the houses along the way, and so you had strangers coming in and seeing. Just like you said, you know, it was an affluent neighborhood. I mean, again, the city of Boulder, great city, uh, in the mountains, Colorado, attracts a lot of people. And yeah, people like to show off what they're doing. And especially in the Ramsey's case, I mean, John was a very successful executive and. Uh, you What's know. always cr- been crazy to me about the case is when you initially see the house, it looks relatively small. It does. It looks I like agree. a quaint little house. 
And then when you see the side of it, you're like, oh, this is like an 8,000 square foot house. Yeah, because it's hard to put seven point, I think it was what, $7 million house and something along those lines. And it didn't look like that from the front. But again, where your where your location is in the mountains, in that type of neighborhood, yeah, you don't really expect things like this to happen. No, Nobody really ever expects anything like this to happen. But, you know, Patsy... Like you said, they went to the party. Yes, it was the 26th. And yes, I would say on the gravestone, it probably is the 26th. That... No, the gravestone is 25th. Oh, it is the 25th. Okay. Yeah, so so they basically, you know, she falls asleep coming home from the party. So mm-hmm. John takes her up and puts her to bed. Uh, Burke stays up. John's not, I don't think he's feeling so well. I don't know if he had a cold. They claim he had a cold. I, I wonder if he just had too many cocktails at the party and decided to turn in early because they were going to fly, I believe, back to Atlanta the next day. They were either going to it. They were either going to Atlanta or they were going to Michigan. One of the two. Okay, yeah, because I, I believe they had a cabin in Michigan. Yeah, in Charlevoix. Yeah, so you're probably right. It's probably Michigan, and then so they put her to bed. Burke's still up. Patsy's doing, you know, do the mom thing. We we gotta get ready because we're gonna leave really early in the morning. And then when she goes to bed, then something happens. So that's why it's like I think you put her in bed about like ten thirty, eleven o'clock, and so whatever happened probably happened the next day. But look, if you, if your daughter, if that happens to your daughter, and you want to put twenty fifth on the gravestone instead of twenty six. I'm not going to argue with you. Yep. Yeah, I, I'm not going to argue with you on that one at all because, you know, the one thing that they always talk about with this case and the thing that has always kind of lingered is, you know, people always like, oh, was it Patsy? Was it, you know, did she, was she the one that committed this crime? And, you know, I just have trouble uh, wrapping my head around a parent doing this. And yeah, there. There's actually a significant amount of cases um, due to, like, potty training, like a lot of accidental deaths where where parents get fed up. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not, like, a huge number, but, the, but, but I remember looking it up or being told by a detective one time what the statistics were, and it was, like, way higher than I thought yeah. it was, would be. So I think a lot of people started leaning towards the idea because... JonBenet was having a lot of issues with wetting the bed that she just got fed up and lashed out and and then it was accidental death. And that was kind of the narrative for a while. Even I think Boulder police were kind of pushing that narrative. Yes. There was an accident. I mean, interesting for them to not even go, hey, we're not going to even blame the family so much, but to say, hey, it was an accident, but what we're blaming for you is that you're covering it up. Then the narrative started changing throughout the years because I think it was just earlier that year, Burke hit his sister, John Bonet, with a golf club in the face. So then Yeah, the whether or not that was, was that an intentional or was he inflicting, you know, was it type, that type of, an, was it an attack or, I mean, I'm sure the parents had questions about that. Yeah, it's it's weird because like with my siblings and stuff when we were kids, there were there were times where people were like swinging the bat. Sure, my sister got drilled with the yellow wiffle ball bat. 
Yeah, I well, I got hit one time with a metal bat. Oh, good. Right no. in the right in the back, but you know, it's like in my my story is that my brother did it on purpose. <laughs> His story was I was swinging the bat and you you backed up into it. So so I, that's why I, I questioned. But then see, you know, CBS. You know, my father's a detective, and out of all the cases that we've covered. I probably talked to him the most about John Benet Ramsey before we even started the podcast. It's just something we talked about. But my my father has done a lot of work where they bring him, they'll send him case files, and say, "Hey, we're working on this thing. Can you take a look at it and see what direction we should go in?" And because of his involvement in the FOP, he became friends with a couple of detectives in Boulder. So uh, he would send in information to them. I mean, obviously, this was all like, you know, uh, approved. Um, so the fact that he was just friends with these guys, he was never privy to case information. But because he was friends with them, he was really fascinated with that case. And so when the CBS the documentary came out, to me and my father and so many other people that watched it, it was like, okay, well, they, they pretty much proved that it was that, that Burke hit her in the head with a flashlight and then the parents decided to cover it up, which which at the time it made a lot of sense. But the more that I started researching the case, the more I was like, this is all, they left out so much stuff. Yeah, and that was a very controversial in 2016. Uh, yeah, the CBS documentary came out, and I know that Jim Clemente was involved with it. Yeah, and you know they had the one doctor, one forensic examiner, come out and say, "Yeah, basically we think it was Burke, and this is why." And <laughs> of course, that led to a massive lawsuit from yeah. Burke. Now, generally speaking, when people say they're going to sue. And they don't, that's a sign that they didn't do any, you know, that they're potentially guilty. But no, nope, he sued and they followed through and they ended up settling out of court. Well, and that's not the only case that he's settled. He's sued so many people, uh, Rag Mags, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, Star I, Magazine. Uh, yeah, and, and you can't, because obviously they settled out of court, you, you don't know the number. But my calculations of just the ones that he settled and then they paid him, I mean, he could be worth over $100 million. Yeah, because, I mean, you really don't go on national or international television and accuse a nine-year-old kid of murdering his sister. It's just irresponsible, in my opinion. But, hey, you know, the producers make that call and sometimes they make the wrong call. I mean, Dan Rather's career got ruined by... Uh, situations like this so yeah I the other thing too I did a talk in Champaign Illinois with my friend Kelly from true crime in real life and one of the things that has really been bothering me lately and, and maybe it's because I'm connected to a, you know, I'm a son of a detective and a lot of his friends will listen to the show and and if they know anything about the case maybe comment later you know if we're out having a beer but I start questioning, like, I mean, the the category or the genre we're in is true crime. And a lot of these cases, now I know you did a deep dive with Amy Mihaljevic's case, but mm-hmm. I would say that that case 
in particular was a true story with no like one person running the narrative. It seemed to me an outsider. It seemed like it was pretty wide open. But you take a case like Mara Murray, it seems like people are trying to control the narrative. Or Brian Schaefer, people try to control the narrative. JonBenet Ramsey was definitely one that, depending on who told you the story, was going to be, would depend on who you thought was guilty. Mm-hmm. And so I now I, I've been questioning so much because it seems like every time we dive into a case, I'm going, this is not the the narrative that I heard for 10 years or, or what, you know what I mean? However long the case was around. Um, so then I start questioning our genre. <laughs> is this even true crime or is it just speculation? This is basically what we know. Crime. This is, this is all the information we have crime. It It is very much, <clears throat> I would say the genre is very problematic in a way. Because ever since you got involved, yeah, ever since I got involved, and I would say, I mean, it's problematic in a sense that if you don't take these cases responsibly, you don't respect the the people, the families, the victims, and you throw out a bunch of speculation. I think that is an irresponsible way of going about it. You know, I'm a professionally trained journalist, so I try to avoid getting involved with. Uh, too much speculation but again with cases like John Bonet or Maura Murray like you said there are narratives that people want to put out there they want to say oh it was the mom no they want to say it was Burke no they want to say uh, you know it was a combination of the two a combination of the two and you know it's kind of like what's going on with Delphi also at the moment with like there are, um, you know, every person who has a sexual offense towards a child becomes a suspect, and a lot of that happened in the Benet, you know, John Benet case. Once the focus eventually began to move away from the parents, and you know, so it'd be like, oh, this is sex offender lived within seven miles of the right. of the home, and it's like. Well, how would he have gotten in and when would he have known this and what's the deal with the ransom note? I mean, the ransom note itself is you could do a whole show on the ransom note. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could. Well, one. What I learned or what I feel like I learned from diving into the cases when the cops come out and say it must have been an intruder. Or no, it must have been somebody in the house because there was no footprints in the snow. Right away, as an armchair detective, you go, there's no footprints in the snow. Right? So it had to be somebody from in the house. But they left out the important part of that that information they gave you. There also wasn't any snow. (laughs) So, yeah, there's no footprints in the snow, but there's no snow. So once you start finding out that the police were putting out information like that, it's it blows my mind. It's almost like, and my father just talked to me about this a lot, a long time. Is is they'd have multiple t- detectives on a case, and if one of them started getting fixated on a suspect or fixated on an idea, 
that guy needs to get off the case. But it almost seems like in the John Bonet Ramsey case, they got fixated on this idea that it had to be somebody inside the house. And I just don't think there's any proof of it. It's just like when that stupid detective lady comes out and says that she was fearing for her life. And the day that they found John Bonet, they show up, the police show up. They think it's a kidnapping. They do search the house, but the police officer that went down to the basement, there was a door that was jammed. Mm-hmm. If he would have got that door open, we would have had a crime scene that we could have, it would have been a prestige, uh, a pristine, sorry, pristine crime scene. Because because basically they could have opened up the door and say, don't go in here. And just only let the technicians go in there. But he couldn't get the door open. So then they started acting as if it was a, a kidnapping. And then, so she's saying, we're acting like it's a kidnapping. We haven't found the child yet. And once they find the child, then she's saying that she's fearing for her life. The detective is fearing for her life. And she's counting the bullets that she has to make sure she has enough bullets. That's not true. All of her early statements, she was in favor of it being an intruder. But that doesn't sell a book. So that was like her uh, sales pitch. I was in that house counting my bullets. And you're like, cool, I want to read that book. And and that's the other problem with this because the case was so big and, and probably the biggest case. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Ever. Let's hear from this week's sponsor, BetterHelp.com. We may have moved past 2020, but 2021 is still looking fairly grim. But today I'm happy to tell you about BetterHelp.com. Because if there's anything holding you back or interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. You can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And it's really convenient because in this current state that we live in, it just has to be. So now you can get help on your own time at at your own pace. All you have to do is schedule a secure video or phone session, or you can chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp really is there for you. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. And if, for whatever reason, you aren't happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. 
So if you're suffering from depression or anxiety, stress, anger, relationship issues, heck, you're not getting a good night's sleep, or have LGBT matters, or just low self-esteem, they literally have a licensed professional counselor for you. And of course, everything you share is confidential. The thing I like the most is it's actually affordable. And Who Killed listeners get 10% off their first month with the discount code WHO. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash WHO. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs, and then you get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, for 10% off, go to betterhelp.com slash WHO. All right, we are back. I can't think of one bigger. I I can't either. I mean, and you got to think that the investigators in that in that town. I mean, we're not talking about necessarily the Keystone cops, but right there were some questionable decisions made. uh, You know, along the lines of what they did. It was also in the '90s, so I'm guessing that the average law enforcement agent on that case was making less than six figures. Oh, and, sure. And you know as well as I do, like there's not a ton of money in books, but yeah. but there's probably six figures in books if it if it if it goes well. So sure. somebody says, "Hey, let's get you to write a book," and that that gives you two or three years worth of your salary. Sure. Yeah. And I think a lot of these cops were willing to say whatever they wanted to. So they acted like they never checked the house. They did. Mm-hmm. They then basically make it seem that they never talked to Burke. They talked to Burke the day they found John Bonet. His John Bonet's parents. If Burke did it, if it was an accident, why would they let him go to their friend's house? And why would they let law enforcement talk with him for hours without them being present? To me, that makes no logical sense. You wouldn't want to leave that nine-year-old in a room. And yes, then later they didn't let the law they didn't let law enforcement talk with Burke, but they already initially did. Yeah. So if I'm his parents, I'm going. Look, you talked to him for a couple hours. You should have all the information you need. Uh, but also, you know, then on the flip side, when you look at the family, like pretty quickly, uh, there's that one documentary where one of their friends called them and said, Hey, I I have some inside information. The cops are trying to pin this on you guys right now, Mm -hmm. like early on. So one, why does, why did law enforcement jump to this conclusion and just start doubling down? And then what, and then again, I, I agree with the family. If you know, this is happening, lawyer up plain and simple, but, um, I mean, it's just such an odd case. And like I said, if if, if that door just would have opened, I don't think we'd be sitting here with no answers. And yeah. And and then it's just like with Delphi, I actually think, um, you know, not to jump cases, but that one, we've had so much information in the last couple of weeks come out about that case or possibly about that case. I keep on going back to where law enforcement states well, we had over 100 FBI agents that first week. And I start going, well, was that just too many? These are very experienced mm-hmm. 
law enforcement agents, but maybe there are just too many because if I go interview three eyewitnesses and you go interview a different three eyewitnesses and nothing sticks out as weird because I don't know their stories. So I can trust the information that you got, but I wasn't in the room, so I might not be able to hear the discrepancies in the details. So, you know, but to me, it's it, for the last, since we covered the case, you know, on True Crime Garage, we did six episodes on the John Benet Ramsey case. And um, I was hoping to, like, have an actual opinion because that's why people are tuning in. And the only conclusion I ever came to with that case was that she was viciously murdered. There's no accident there. I mean, no. because if if she fractures her skull before she's dead, there's blood everywhere. And and think about like that that bleach blonde hair. I, I had a buddy one time had had this similar type of hair. He you know got a little cut on his head and it was just like gushing blood everywhere and his like hair was like turning pink and. Yeah, I had and, bright blonde hair when I was a kid, and I had multiple head injuries, uh, which would explain a lot. And, uh, yeah, it makes yeah, a lot of sense it now. Makes, yeah, I know. And, uh, yeah, it's definitely not a good look to be uh, bleeding with blonde hair. Yeah, and, and also just, like, when you start reviewing the autopsy and they start talking about the half moons around her neck, because because mm-hmm. one of the one of the ropes or string, however you want to view it, was so buried into her neck that you couldn't even see it. So there's like one that's almost invisible and then the other one like you can see on top. Uh, but there's all these half moons around it. And so again, learn the information, call my father. Hey dad, what what do half moons mean? Oh, it means that somebody was struggling uh, like to pull the rope off themselves. So you'd be struggling, and so you'd be embedding your your nails, uh, and your nails would leave normally like half moons. Okay, that um, makes sense. Sometimes they'll see the half moons on the actual killer because the person put up a fight and maybe didn't wasn't able to scratch, but was just digging their nails into the into their murderer. So. But, I mean, every detective I talk to and, and some uh, people that I know that are going to school for forensics, I mean, you say half moons, that like instantly the person was struggling. So my theory is somebody choked her to death. So, so here's here's the other thing. When I was giving the speak, the, uh, I was giving that talk in Champaign um, a couple of weeks ago, some people would go, I love your show, but I disagree with you on John Benet Ramsey. <laughs> and I'm like, well, who do you think killed, you know, and they'll say Patsy or John or whoever. And I'm like, but I never gave a theory because I don't know who killed her. Like, all I know is that she was viciously murdered. And that doesn't rule out Patsy and that doesn't rule out John. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I lean away from them because, like you said, I just don't see it's less likely that a, a parent's going to viciously murder their child like that. And for the circumstances that we're talking about, I mean, what they bring up as as a motive potentially is the bedwetting scenario that you brought up earlier in the episode. And it's just like, okay, yeah, there's been cases that parents get out of control, but there's never been any, you know, 
Burke has said many times, and I'm basically Burke was like, we never got spanked. We were never, yeah, you know, there was never any finger put on top put on us. So well, and that's uh, that's other information that was leaked by leaked to the media by law enforcement was that there was um, chronic sexual abuse to John Bonet. And that just was not true. That was I mean, not true. That what they think happened, they, they call it digital... Uh, penetration. D- digital penetration, which normally means that you were, uh, you were penetrated by a finger. And... But all they could see is possibly that she was molested the day of her murder, that there was some kind of molestation the day of her murder, and possibly a couple days beforehand because there was bruising. But but some of those doctors have said, well, there's def- there's definitely some kind of digital molestation or di- digital penetration. The bruising could have been from bedwetting or there 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 can be some bruising to that area if even if you're just uh wiping too hard um gotcha so so that's where it gets a little convoluted but i i lean towards the idea that, look they had all these family parties most likely the killer would have known her would have been obsessed with her possibly touched her a couple of days beforehand um maybe even got scared that she was going to tell people. I think where it gets really confusing is I don't think whoever killed her planned on killing her in the house. I I don't think there was even that. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting take, but it, it really is. Uh, I think what you mentioned about, having somebody possibly have molested her a few days before and then coming back to, you know, silence her in a sense. Right. I think that actually makes a lot of uh, sense in in a way because they did have family parties, work parties. They had, uh, you know, that tour, like we said. And again, like we had mentioned before, or we didn't mention, I'm not sure, but... The pageants, you know, the beauty pageants. I mean, she was not just some normal little girl. She was paraded around as a young yeah. little adult. And those videos are very disturbing And if you're, like, looking at it in hindsight. I mean, they're probably disturbing either way, but how easily it would have been for somebody just to go to one of those shows and see this girl dressed up like a woman and it's like boom the fantasy is kicked off and now he's got an obsession and yeah the thing that's so disturbing in that case to me is the argument she got in with her friend's mom it was a few days before christmas she was telling her friend you know they had a little play date and she's like hey uh santa claus is going to come visit me after christmas and give me a gift. And the mom said, well, hold on a second. No, Santa Claus comes on Christmas. Like, you, sh- he's bringing you. And she said, no. Santa Claus told me that he's coming to visit me after Christmas. And he's going to give me a gift. And so the fact that then she ends up dead 
after Christmas, essentially. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, look, whether it's 9 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, that's after Christmas. Christmas is a normally a morning type thing. You might have Christmas dinner. Sure. But, you know, when I, when I was growing up, we'd wake up as early as we could, open up the gifts, and by noon, we're like, okay, we're done with this. You know, Christmas is kind of over, and you're just kind of... And even in college, we used to do this thing where we'd have a Christmas barbecue at night because everybody, you'd go home and visit your family, but you'd be like, oh, now it's five o'clock at night, <laughs> bored. Oh, yeah. have a barbecue. Christ, Christ, Christmas night out. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't be a 20-something and, you know, not go to the bars after Christmas dinner or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's... That's why they're open. And again, that's just what you did when you were in your 20s. And well, and it, so so to me, it's just such a, when when that information came out, to me, it's like, that was a, powerful too, especially because we have a really polite kid. Sure. And that the fact that she's going to be willing to speak up and go, no, 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 no. Don't correct me. I know what I heard. Right. And then I was just going to say that, they did have somebody playing Santa Claus, and that was the neighbor, Bill McReynolds. Yeah, and look, a lot of times it points to him because of that. If you, if you, who, who, who was Santa that told her this? Was it Bill? But also, she was in this Christmas pageant. Was it somebody working the Christmas pageant? Was it some guy that went to the pageant dressed up as Santa? Because a lot of those pageants are like in malls and stuff. Mm-hmm. So sure. did some guy just put on a Santa suit and then and and he could sit there and not look? I mean, yeah, he'd look strange because he was in a Santa suit, but maybe he wouldn't look strange for just watching these little kids being paraded around like show ponies. Um, yeah, that would definitely not be a... I mean, again, having these things at the mall, that is another thing that is just disturbing. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird about the the pageants because I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I started teaching like kids. Oh, did you hear? You can I did. You hear barking. I did. Yeah, I have a rescue dog. Um, it's not been going well. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's our PSA for the week. It's a really good dog, but it, it was one of those things where people. People are saying, "Hey, we need to rescue this dog. They're going to put it to sleep tonight." And and that they made it seem like if I just take the dog for a couple of days, that if if they can't find a home, that they'll take it to a, another rescue or something. And uh, I have not heard back from them, and it's been over two weeks. So I don't know what I'm going to do with this dog. Uh, uh, ownership's nine tenths of the law, <laughs> or possession's nine tenths of the whatever. Uh, well, and but and I told him, you know, not to get too off su- subject, but I was like, I'm I'm going to be traveling a lot. I I can't, and nobody that I know is going to take the dog. I can't leave it in my house for uh, three days by itself. Uh, the captain was arrested on am- animal cu- cruelty. And, <laughs> no, so I I don't know where where I sit on these pageants because, like I said, I I used to teach guitar lessons. Like um, I I think I started when I was eighteen and. And a lot of my friends were like early twenties, and they'd be like, "Oh man, I, yeah, I got a couple cute students or hot students." And I'm like, "My students are sixteen 
or even 17. So in the real world, 18-year-old kid dating a 17-year-old is not that big of a deal. When you're their teacher, it even if you're just their guitar instructor, to me that's to me that's creepy. All right, that will do it for part one of The Captain and Who Killed John Benet Ramsey. Tune in for the conclusion on New Year's Eve. And also, don't forget to check out my newest podcast, Big Mountains and Old Friends, starting on December 28th. I will be traveling the country and visiting some of the best ski resorts in North America, and I will be podcasting all the way across the country. Thank you to the captain for joining me for a special holiday episode of Who Killed. He's a very busy man with a very successful show, so I suggest everybody check out truecrimegarage.com. And thank you to betterhelp.com for sponsoring this week's episode. If you'd like to save 10%, please use my promo code, WHO. As you know, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday. So if you enjoy this podcast, as well as the other shows that I produce and host, you can help support independent journalism by using my PayPal username, at WilliamHuffman3, or you can contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at Bill-Huffman-3. I say it every week, but every contribution, big or small, does help keep these slow burn media podcasts running. You can help support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you listen to your favorite shows. Those five stars help keep the important cases I cover, such as all the unsolved cases I've covered in the spotlight. If you'd like to stay up to date on the cases I have covered, as well as the new shows I have coming down the pipeline, you can always follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. It is a wild card. You never know what you're going to get. Thank you so much again for listening. I hope everyone has a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday. Until next time, as always, be healthy and stay safe. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.